Part 4. The Ascetic Practices. Adding Intensity. Mention has been made earlier of the 13 Dhutanga practices. These are the ascetic practices which the Buddha allowed his monks to adopt if they wished in order to intensify their practice. The Dutangas were practices aimed at abrading or wearing away the defilements by creating situations in which they were provoked and directly opposed. By the standards of the day, they were mild in nature. Certainly, they paled beside the physical challenges that the Buddha undertook prior to finding the right way of practice that led to his enlightenment. Wearing only tree bark, or owl wings for example, he had practiced standing continuously in the open for long periods using a mattress of spikes, making his bed in charnel grounds with the bones of the dead for a pillow. In one of the most vivid passages in the suttas, the Buddha described the extent to which he took the practice of fasting. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank far down into their sockets, looking like a gleam of water that has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled and withered as a green bitter gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta 36 The Buddha-to-be's insight that however much pain lay in such asceticism, there was no real gain, was a turning point on his path to enlightenment. He realized that it was, in fact, wisdom that freed the mind and wisdom of a type that could not be developed in a weak, emaciated body. His rejection of prevailing modes of asceticism was a devastating one, because none of the proponents could accuse him of an opposition to it based on fear or lack of personal experience. The abrasive practices allowed by the Buddha did not emphasize feats of physical endurance based on the idea of erasing old gamma or of freeing the spirit from the prison of the body. They focused on exerting an intensified pressure on the attachments that condition suffering. The criteria for deciding whether a practice should be adopted or not was that it led to an increase in wholesome mental states and a decrease in unwholesome mental states. The Buddha praised those monks who took on these practices with the correct motivations, for the sake of fewness of desires, for the sake of contentment, for the sake of eliminating defilements, for the sake of solitude, for the sake of simplicity. Although references to Dutanga practices are found in a number of places in the Buddha's discourses, they were collected into a group of thirteen in the path of purification as follows. 1. Wearing rag robes, bangsakula, 
i.e. robes made from cloth discarded on rubbish heaps or in cremation forests. 2. Wearing only three robes, the upper robe, the lower robe and the outer robe. 3. Going on a daily alms round and subsisting on the food offered on it, i.e. not accepting supplementary food prepared in the monastery. 4. Accepting food from all houses without discrimination. 5. Eating one meal a day in one uninterrupted session. 6. Eating only from the alms bowl. 7. Refusing extra food or second helpings after commencing the meal. 8. Dwelling in a forest. 9. Dwelling at the foot of a tree. 10. Dwelling in the open air. 11. Dwelling in a cremation forest. 12. Dwelling in whatever place is allotted to him. And 13. Abstaining from lying down in Pali Nisajika. Adoption of the Dutanga practices was so much a vital part of the Isan forest tradition that its members often refer to themselves as Dutanga meditation monks. Four of the five practices above regarding alms food were compulsory for all monks, accepting food from all houses without discrimination, eating one meal a day in one uninterrupted session, eating only from the alms bowl, and refusing extra food or second helpings after commencing the meal. Practice 12, the acceptance of any dwelling allotted to them by the Sangha, was also compulsory. Monasteries were established in forests, fulfilling practice 8, and often in cremation forests, practice 11. These practices were all adopted by Luang Po when he established Wat Bapong. Of the remaining Dutangas, Luang Po recommended monks undertake them as ways to intensify or revitalize their practice. When monks got into a rut and became depressed about their inability to overcome their weaknesses, Dutanga practices gave them new hope and energy. When monks became complacent or lost their edge to the practice, Dutanga practices brought up a new sense of commitment. Luang Po speaks about the Dutangas. Sometimes your sila and samadhi aren't enough. They're unable to kill the defilements. They don't know how. You need to introduce Dutanga practices to help. These abrasive practices are important. They scour away at the defilements. They help to cut off so many obstructions. Try going to stay in a cremation forest. What's it like? Is it the same as living with the community? Right there. That's the benefit of the Dutanga practices. These practices are difficult to accomplish because they are the observances of the noble ones. They are the practices undertaken by a person aiming to become one of the noble ones. What distinguishes the Dutanga practices is that initially at least 
they are not particularly peaceful. When practitioners who have defilements take on ascetic practices, they are agitated by them, and that's the point. These are practices intended to bring things up. The Buddha was right. If your practice is cool and relaxed, then it's incorrect because there's no opposition, no conflict. These dutangas directly oppose the unenlightened mind. When you take on the ascetic practices, you start to suffer because they counter the views and opinions of unenlightened people. A person without any wisdom won't want to bear it. I don't want to practice like this. I am practicing to realize happiness and peace. I don't agree with practicing in ways that make you suffer. That person doesn't agree with eating in his bowl. He doesn't agree with living on alms food and so on, because they are all difficult things to do. Only one with wisdom and real faith will be determined to develop these practices. But for the practitioner who has attained the Dhamma, then these thirteen ascetic practices are comfortable, peaceful and serene. At this stage, it's like a monkey and a human being. A human being walks into a forest and makes a commotion, trampling over everything and destroying the peace. But a monkey let free in the forest finds it can move around easily and really enjoys it. The monkey likes the conditions because they suit the way it likes to live. Dense, unenlightened people who are used to comfort, eating, sleeping and talking as they wish, really start to suffer when they have to come and live like this and practice in this way. But the Buddha taught that it's this very suffering which is Dhamma. It's the fruit of practice. So why do you see the fruit first? Suffering arises because you don't see the cause. The suffering that arises is the noble truth of suffering. It's a result. When suffering arises, there is agitation, irritation and dislike. When the practitioner sees resultant suffering, then he must follow it up to see what it arises from and where. Rag Robes There had been periods in Lung Po's life when cloth had been in extremely short supply. At such times, he had made robes with cloth taken from corpses in cremation forests. The ceremonial cotton rope used to pull the hearse from the village to the forest provided him with thread. Lung Po once spoke of the benefits of wearing such robes. We had to make all our own requisites. They may not have looked so good, but we were proud of them, because they'd been produced by our own skill and effort. We'd sew robes by hand. By the time you finished, your thumb would be aching and swollen all over. There was no cotton other than the rope they used to draw hearses, and we'd go and look for it in cremation forests, and then take it away and twist it into thread. The robes would be hardy and thick and heavy. Mostly, we used bangsakula cloth, cloth that had been wrapped around corpses 
and then tossed into the forest. There would be dried blood caked on it, and pus stains, and it would stink to high heaven. You'd have to take it away, and wash it clean, and then boil it, put it out in the sun, and then dye it with jackfruit dye. When you put it on, you'd feel that it had great benefit, because it would make your hair stand on end, and you'd be thrilled through and through. You'd feel a constant sense of dread. It made you diligent. Diligent to practice sitting and walking meditation throughout the night without drowsiness. Not wanting to sleep because of the fear, feeling stimulated and apprehensive. This kind of ascetic practice is useful. It wears away the defilements. On one occasion, while following Lung Bu Man on arms round, Lung Po Li recounts how they came across an old pair of trousers thrown away by the side of the road. He described feeling much surprise when Lung Bu Man started to kick the trousers along in front of him. Finally, when he reached the fence around the police station, he stooped down, picked up the trousers, and fastened them under his robes. I was puzzled. What did he want with old trash like that? When we got back to the kuti, he placed the trousers over the clothes railing. Several days later, I saw that the old pair of trousers had become a shoulder bag and a belt hanging together on the wall. And a few days afterwards, he gave them to me to use. They were nothing but stitches and patches. Food, inglorious food. All the monastics at Wat Bapong, monks, novices and mechis, were expected to keep the Dutanga practices of eating only once a day from a single vessel. Everything, rice, curries, salad greens, fruits, sweets, had to go into the alms bowl. No food could be placed in the bowl lid, apart from occasionally on important Buddhist holidays when this practice might be relaxed. Small bowls of noodle soup, or in later days, ice cream, that were offered at such times, did not have to be tipped into the bowl with the rest of the food. It was considered a special treat. Usually, though, no individual side dishes were permitted. Lung Po reminded his disciples that all the different foods would soon be mixed up in the stomach anyway. So what was the problem? For junior monks and novices, the natural hunger for food arising after a 24-hour fast, compounded by the sensual desire for tasty food and a fear of not getting enough to sustain the body for the next day, could be a heady mix. It was an excellent opportunity to face up to greed and attachment. It was also the most stressful part of the day. For the hour or so before the 8am daily meal offering, the monks were expected to sit in meditation at their allotted places in the dining hall. For many, it was a difficult time. They had been up since 3am, had not eaten since the previous morning, and had just returned from a long walk. Drowsiness, especially in the hot season, was a common foe. Desire for food agitated many minds. But if anyone lingered outside the hall and indulged in hushed conversation to pass the time, 
the sound of Luang Po clearing his throat was likely to be heard. It was a sound that would make the words die in their throats. That sound had a great power to it, said one monk. It was like the roar of a tiger, and it terrified us. All food gathered on arms round was considered to belong to the Sangha rather than the individual monk who had received it. On return to the monastery, monks would empty out their bowls, keeping only a ball of sticky rice for themselves. The rest of the food was sent to the kitchen, where it was sorted and added to the side dishes being prepared there. During periods when food was scarce, newly ordained monks could sometimes find it hard to have to relinquish items that they had gathered themselves. It seemed unfair to some that when the food was distributed, their item would rarely reach them at the end of the line. One particular monk took to concealing food inside his rice ball. One day, he received a hard-boiled egg on arms round, and instead of sending it to the kitchen, he moulded his sticky rice ball around it. It so happened that on that particular day, Luang Po walked down the line, checking the size of the monk's rice balls. When he reached the devious monk's bowl, he stopped. The rice ball had cracked open, revealing the boiled egg hidden within it. Luang Po said, Whose ball of rice has laid an egg? All eyes turned towards the monk, who was now sickly white with fear and embarrassment and beginning to shake. Luang Po did not say another word, but silently walked back to his seat. Monks who were present at the time said that nobody ever tried the trick again. On one occasion, Luang Po exhorted the Sangha, We haven't come here to practice for the sake of food. We haven't come here to eat and sleep. We have entered the Sangha in order to practice the Buddha's teachings. If all you want is to live comfortably and eat well, then it would be better if you weren't a monk. You can do that as a layman, and you don't have to enter the monastic order. If you want to get something, or do something, or eat something, then you can just go ahead. It's more convenient out there, you can be more comfortable, you can eat better. But, if you consider it well, you'll see that it's a path that ends in tears. We've come here to follow the Buddha's teachings. We've come because of our respect for the Buddha. If you think like that, the Sangha will live in harmony, and there will be no contention among you. A popular practice adopted by monks during the rains retreat entailed only eating food obtained on alms round, and refusing all the side dishes prepared in the monastery kitchen. Luang Po explained why it was not the norm in the monastery and why he allowed supplementary dishes to be prepared. Some groups of monks go into the forest and keep the ascetic practice of only eating food offered on alms round. But the only one who benefits from it is the most senior of them. On arms round, there are one or two items of food offered to go with the rice, not enough to go around, and they go into the bowls of the monks first in line. The teacher does well in that kind of ascetic practice. He can just carry his bowl off and have a good meal, while everyone else suffers, 
lay people want to offer their food to the Ajahn, and so the novice at the end of the line goes without. Our way of doing things here is meant to ensure that everything is shared equally. At the foot of a tree Luang Po cautioned his disciples to avoid letting ideas of ownership arise with regard to their kutis, even if they had lived in them for a number of years. Kutis were Sangha residences, and Luang Po taught the monks that they must always look upon themselves as temporary occupants. When newly arrived in the monastery, monks were expected to keep the ascetic practice of accepting with good grace whatever kuti was allotted them, whether it suited them or not. When they left the monastery for more than a few days, even with the expectation of returning, they would be expected to remove all of their possessions from their kuti and make it available for others. On their return, they would have to accept whatever kuti might be available. If their old kuti was still empty, they might move back in. If not, they would have to live elsewhere. Once the rains had stopped, the forest floor had dried out, and the first cool winds of the cold season had arrived, Luang Po would tell the monks to move down out of their kutis and put up their glots in the forest. It was the period of the year for practicing the Dutanga practice of living at the foot of a tree. During this time, he would also send a few of the monks off to stay in nearby cremation forests, while those with more than five years' seniority might ask to leave on Tudong. Living under their glots in the forest provided a means by which monks could check to see if they had become attached to basic comforts and the sense of safety they derived from their kutis. The kutis at Wat Papong were mostly simple wooden huts without furniture of any kind. But being raised on stilts, they caught the breeze and offered protection from snakes, scorpions and centipedes. Living at the foot of a tree was inconvenient and demanded a great deal of patience. But it was usually the irritating ants, termites and mosquitoes that disturbed the monks, rather than the more dangerous creatures. At the foot of a tree, monks felt themselves vulnerable. At night time, they became sensitive to the slightest sound around them. They were naturally alert. It was a state conducive to the development of meditation and good preparation for a future experience of a Tudong walk. No lying down. The thirteenth ascetic practice is aimed at developing energy. A monk who undertakes it determines not to lie down for a certain period, perhaps two weeks, perhaps a month or even three months. Some monks keep the practice for a number of years. Those who undertake this practice sleep sitting up. They may determine at what level of strictness they want to practice, whether or not, for example, they will allow themselves to sit leaning against the wall. At Wat Bapong, this ascetic practice was compulsory for the whole Sangha on every observance day, the half, full and dark moon days, approximately once a week. Although it was not a common undertaking, even in forest monasteries, Luang Po made not lying down, or in Pali, Nesajika, a signature practice. 
he saw great value in having his disciples push themselves beyond their comfort zone in this way. Each observance day, from seven in the evening until the following dawn, there would be a program of chanting, meditation and Dhamma teaching. Luang Po would usually give a talk lasting some two or three hours, and then he would sit meditating in the hall right through the night as an example. He encouraged the Sangha, If you can't manage it today, then you must clearly achieve it on another day. Even if you don't make it cleanly or purely, you're drowsy or lose your mindfulness at times, at least don't lay down. It doesn't matter if you doze off while you're practicing sitting, walking or standing meditation. It doesn't matter how drowsy you get. That's all quite natural. But please put a special amount of patience and effort and sincerity into your practice. Extracurricular activities Any monks wishing to take on an ascetic practice had first to receive permission from Luang Po. Sometimes they asked to undertake practices not found in the classic list. Amongst these, fasting and taking a vow of silence were the most popular. Keeping silence was not a practice praised by the Buddha. Indeed, he forbade whole communities from taking vows of silence, as he saw it as an obstacle to the development of right speech and to the governance of the Sangha. But there have always been Buddhist monks who have seen periods of silence as helping them to take a step back from unskillful habits of speech they have acquired and to become more aware of the intentions behind their words. They have valued the way that abstaining from speech also reduces the noise in the mind and turns the mind inwards. If Luang Po was convinced that the practice was appropriate for the monk wishing to undertake it and would lead to a strengthening of his meditation, then he would consent. During the rains retreat, Luang Po would sometimes make a period of silence compulsory for the whole Sangha, explaining that as he was making himself exempt, the Vinaya rule prohibiting the practice was not transgressed. The Buddha rejected fasting as a means of purifying the mind. He marked his abandonment of the tenets of the ascetic movement of his time by accepting a nourishing bowl of milk rice from the milkmaid Sujata. But although the Buddha stressed frugality, moderation and sense restraint while eating, he did not forbid fasting altogether. In Wat Ba Pong, many monks experimented with it. Fasting, used wisely, can be a powerful tool for exposing attachments to sensuality in the body and to the fear of death. It is considered to be particularly helpful for giving monks assailed by lust at least a temporary respite from sexual desire. At best, it can give them an opportunity to rebuild their samadhi and gain a fresh perspective on their craving. For many monks, an occasional fast provides a break from alms round and the daily meal offering, a few extra hours of solitude. Luang Po allowed some monks to fast and forbade others. He emphasized understanding the intention to fast. His advice on this issue tended to vary according to time, place and person. 
If, for instance, a monk asked permission to fast and Lung Po saw that he had an unwise attitude, he wanted to do something special to distract from his inability or unwillingness to do the ordinary things, or he wanted to make a name for himself amongst his peers, then Luang Po would be discouraging. But on other occasions, if he felt that a period of fasting would be of benefit to a particular individual in developing patience or opposing defilement, then he would give permission. He pointed out the lack of continuity it sometimes entailed and how unwise renunciation could boomerang into unwise indulgence. The value of fasting depends on the individual. It's difficult to lay down a definite rule about it. But putting everything into the practice doesn't mean exhausting yourself. It's about finding just the right amount keeping the mind in balance. Some people can fast for 15 days and spend the whole time doing walking meditation. But then, when they eat, they can knock off five plates of greens and as much rice as they can get their hands on. That's so excessive, it's amazing, but not in a good way. He would remind his disciples that taking on such practices could be a good experience, but that it was the middle path that led to awakening. You might be able to walk or float through the air, and it wouldn't be anything to do with practice. You could eat only seven mouthfuls of food every day, and it wouldn't be practice because it's not the right amount. These things don't lead to enlightenment. Practice is a matter of being content and a few wishes but enough wishes to keep you going. If you're a little bit hungry, your mind is easy to teach. But if you're really hungry, then it's difficult to teach. It's dull. Eat just enough to stay healthy. Lung Po would also comment that reducing food intake to a minimum was a more effective boost to training the mind. It's like an elephant in a bamboo grove. If you want to ride on its neck, then you have to capture it and put a harness on it. Once it's chained, then you give it something to eat, but not much. The elephant becomes fearful and hungry, and then, after a while, when it starts to lose weight, it lets you teach and train it. That's how you domesticate a wild elephant. Once it's trained, you can let it go free, even into the market. Train yourself in the same way. On occasion, however, he would explain how the experience of fasting stood monks in good stead if they found themselves in remote areas with no village to provide alms food and a long trek ahead of them. They were able to bear up because they knew what doing without food does to the body and mind. Those without such experience were more likely to be overcome by fear. Luang Po had experimented with fasting himself. Sometimes he related his own observations to his disciples. Sometimes, after fasting for three or four days, you feel weary. The late afternoon is a crucial time and you almost give up. But then, at night time, you get another surge of energy from the coolness. 
the second phase is important as well, when to break your fast. It's extremely difficult to decide on this point. You think, shall I keep going a bit longer or is this enough? Your mind is thrown into disarray. Sometimes you look at your bowl and then you want to go on arms round. If I don't go for another two or three days, will I be able to make it? And then your mind is off and back to the question of shall I go or shan't I? It's a difficult, troublesome time until you decide if I die, I die. I'm not going on arms round today. And then you immediately feel stronger and your weariness dissolves once more. That's how the practice is established. It's dependent on unwavering patience. More than a week has passed and you still don't feel hungry. You feel fine. You feel as if you could live without eating for an indefinite period, until death if need be. Just one big stride and you'd be out of all this. It's at this point that you need to be careful, very careful. You look at the other monks and novices, and it seems as if the whole what is so busy. First thing in the morning, they have to go on arms round, and before long, they have to put food in their bodies. And not long after that, they have to empty it all out again. The next morning, they have to stuff more in. And then before long, they have to empty it out again and go out for more. They're crazy. We're all such slaves of craving and defilements. At this point, some people decide to give up eating altogether. They think they'd be better off dead. This is a crucial moment. You see eating as a trivial matter. But such thoughts are too elevated. And it's an elevation that's upside down. It ends in derangement. You start criticizing rice and fish. Rice grains start to look like maggots. You don't want any to go into your bowl. Lung Po repeated that meditators who deliberately pitted themselves against natural impulses under controlled conditions could gain many insights. But constant vigilance was necessary to prevent them from falling prey to the pitfalls attendant on such practices. It was right view that kept everything on track. In summary, the Bhatimoka training rules, the observances and the ascetic practices dovetail to create the distinctive features of monastic life at Wat Bapong. They were fundamental to the sense of community, of a shared culture and identity. But if Vinaya was the lifeblood of the monk's existence, it was meditation that was its beating heart. <laughs>